Hello and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I'm the moderator, JP. Um, yada, yada, yada. Father Chuck. <laughs> Comrade Charles. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Uh, it's it's weird. It's a weird week because uh, my kids are in fall break. Okay. And so I took, I'm, I'm only working a two-day week this week. Uh, on top of that, this upcoming Sunday is the convention Eucharist for the convention of the Diocese of Hawaii. And we had to go for t our second year in a row now to uh, a virtual convention, which means that our – so normally when you have like a diocesan convention, there's like a big Eucharistic church service so that everybody who's gathered celebrates together as like right the entire – you know. The, the Episcopal Church in Hawaii worshiping together in one location. But because we can't be together, we're doing it virtually. So this Sunday, every Episcopal Church in Hawaii will be doing like the same service. Okay. But uh, the sermon will be is pre-recorded from the bishop and then we'll be like piping it in on our screens and stuff for everybody to to, to hear the bishop's sermon together. So that's just a fancy way of saying like, I don't have to prepare a sermon this Sunday either. <laughs> so I'm a little, I'm a little bit like, why am I even here right now? <laughs> Cause like I did my like Bible study stuff yesterday. Uh -huh. And so like today is normally my sermon day, but I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not preaching. So like I'm chilling Chill. doing this, doing this podcast. There you go. And uh, I, I will say that I would use the opportunity to get a jump on things in the future, but it's just it's 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 a weird week. Yeah, um, yeah. must be so. nice though. It's it's great to like. Whenever I'm at my desk and I realize, oh, I have no responsibilities. It's just like just that one second of realization, of just like, ha, ah, like just a sigh of relief. Oh, you see, for me, I'm like my my feeling is like, am I am I missing something? Have I? <laughs> oh, of course, I'm like, only talking about more. I'm only talking about the brief second before that kicks in. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I well, so but like I, you know, I, I haven't I haven't really taken like much of a vacation <laughs> in a long time. So what I'm doing this week is I I've taken off a couple of days this week so that I can I, I've already done it where I spent one day with one son, the next day with the other son. So I have one on one daddy time with each of the sons. Okay. And then we're going to do something as a family tomorrow, which is kind of nice. So daughter just, you know, well, I, I, uh, well, she's, I mean, she's still an infant, so she doesn't, she's not really building those memories yet. But, <laughs> uh, but the thing is I, I'm actually, I, I actually do more with her pretty consistently because she's not in school. Okay. So like on Mondays on my day off, you know, Kana has some stuff that she schedules as a self-care stuff for her. And so when that happens, it's me and Cora together. So I got you. So, so I get lots of daddy-daughter time regularly. I don't get as much boys because they're in school. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. Great. Great. Love checking in, checking in on, on you and your fam. Chucking in? Is yeah. that chucking in? <laughs> no, I really chucking said in chucking chuck, in. Chucking in. <laughs> we should call this segment chucking in. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I noticed a couple of mistakes in recent episodes, and I feel like I just didn't. I don't feel comfortable just letting it, letting them be. I need to. I need to correct them. Oh, so this is like the uh, this is like the editorial correction thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, correction number one. I don't know where I heard that the reason why EC Comics 
prefer to tell their tales in a morality format to where if someone gets their comeuppance because it was a way to skirt conservative censors. Because I, I've done some reading since then, and I can't find that anywhere. I think they just did it because they liked it. <laughs> I don't think they did it to skirt conservatives. Um, okay. And I don't know. I, do you ever just have a thought and you're like, where did I come up with that? Like, I, th- I could have sworn someone told me. I could have sworn I read it. I can't find it anywhere. I, I've got one, actually. Somebody that we'll talk about today is this, this gentleman right here. Yeah. Stanley Hauerwas. And there's a quote of his. I, I swear it's a quote of his. I cannot find it. I, 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 I've, I've written a book that I'm trying to get published, and I, I, I'm trying to get all my editorial stuff together. You know, like, anyway, I cannot find the source for this quote. And this quote is, and it speaks to our topic today, uh, is uh, the American dream is defined by accumulating as much wealth as possible in order to put death off for as long as possible. Hmm. So I think he's right. He's accurate. I cannot find where he said it. And I have this entire thick book of his, which I swear it came from this book. I haven't found it in there. I've got like a handful of his other books over there. And I cannot find the quote anywhere. Weird. I don't know why that happens. We're just getting old. We're old old men. (laughs) Or or there really is something to this whole Mandela effect. And we are somehow like transitioning between parallel universes, but we're carrying artifacts from the different ones. I don't know. I, I don't know where I heard my little factoid, but I still kind of stand by it. And then I, I think that there's a, the, there's, a, there's a truth to it. I still think it's kind of conservative to, to make horror movies about people who get their comeuppance. Um, second, second correction. Um, we, I, we were talking about episodes of Seinfeld, and I gave my story about the episode The Bet. That episode is not called The Bet. It is called The Competition. Or no, no, no. The Contest. The Contest. Yeah. So I just don't want us to look like, you know, posers. (laughs) (laughs) We know it, okay? Just sometimes when you're recording, you're doing things kind of like on the fly a little bit. And sometimes the synapses don't quite connect. And you make a typo. You make a little error. Well, it's kind of like, it makes me think a little bit like Robin Williams. You know, when Robin Williams would do stand-up. Other comedians loved when Robin Will- when they would like see Robin Williams do stand up if they had ever like been around him because he had no filter and he yeah. would just sort of pull stuff that was in his head that was funny and oftentimes it would be other comedians' material because <laughs> it was in there and he didn't always remember that it came from someone else. That's funny. And then if he but the thing is is that if he was point if, was, if someone pointed out to him that it was their material he would pay them money. <laughs> Like, not to buy the material, but just to acknowledge, like, oh, I messed up, I stole your material. Like, and he would do something like buy him a drink or buy him money or something. Right. So, like, I think about I think about Robin Williams when, like, when we're, like, when you're in the throes of whatever you're doing, right? Like, yeah. you're just pulling stuff sometimes where you know it's in there. You don't know where it came from. Or, like, George Harrison, when he recorded My Sweet Lord, he didn't realize that he'd actually stolen the, the song from someone else. Huh. Anyway, so we got that business out of, out of the way. I feel better. Okay. I can I can sleep at night now. <laughs> Good. Because I, I've, I've noticed there were other mistakes I've made in the past. Like I did this whole thing about the final girl when we talked about Scream and I was like dead wrong. Uh, and so things like that. I want to be better about stuff like that. Okay, good. At least for my own sake. Okay. I make, I, I make no mistakes. No. So. Never. As, as I, I'm taking over Matt's role here. I'm perfect. <laughs> I'm going to become the show's like fact checker. 
Um, so today we have a really interesting topic. Um, it's a little different from what we normally do and because usually we kind of avoid, I wouldn't say avoid, but we kind of skirt around like kind of blatantly political topics, right? Right. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons why. I think that um, this is not really the, the point of the podcast, uh, but sometimes there are issues that come up that you just can't like ignore, right? Right. And there are things that we noticed about what we kind of specialize in, which is, you know, Christianity and the church and how it affects culture. Someone related to this, too, I think, is on occasion, these kinds of issues, these kinds of topics have morphed into a type of pop culture thing. Uh-huh. And therefore, it becomes something that you sort of have to kind of talk about because, especially in our in our in our world, because it's it's it is kind of like it's it, it it escapes the realm of like intellectual, political, economic type, academic, whatever you want to call it type topic, and into pop culture, and then therefore like it, it's within our wheelhouse. I think. Yeah, I think so too, and it is kind of starting to bubble up, and uh, that's kind of what leads me to what I'm about to talk about right now to kind of set things mm-hmm. up. Um, I want to talk about IATSE, which is the um, International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. So these LGBT people are adding too many <laughs> letters, man. Added, added five more letters. Um, <laughs> um, so as, you, as many of you know, my background is in film production. I went to film school and later moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in the film industry. It didn't really work out, and I eventually had to leave, but I worked and lived in the film production world long enough to see how it works and what is required of normal, everyday people to have a career. Um, In the industry, there is something known as the line. And if you work on a set or in production, you either exist below the line or above the line. (laughs) Above the line workers are the people who you are probably most familiar with. They're like directors, cinematographers, producers, editors, composers, art directors, production designers, etc. They're the bridge crew of the Starship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These people can make upwards to millions of dollars per project, belong to very high-paying guilds, and normally dictate the labor that happens during a production. Below-the-line workers consist of far more people and far more moving parts. These are your grips electricians, camera assistants, assistant directors, assistant editors, production assistants, costuming and wardrobe workers, makeup and hair artists, visual effects artists, craft services, countless more, right? Um, These jobs do not pay out in the millions. In fact, some of them don't even earn a minimum wage or sometimes nothing at all. Sometimes it's just for experience and exposure. Um, these are what are known as crew positions, and their only recognition comes from the crawling text you see at the end of every movie, the credits. And they don't win any awards, and they just don't make much money. Being a crew member can be grueling. Some work 14 hours or more on a given day. Some days will require a crew to skip meals and bathroom breaks. Uh, not much thought or compassion is awarded to crew members, and within the culture of the film industry, this treatment is not only expected, but encouraged. Studios don't pay much, and the online streaming companies like Netflix and Amazon, they actually pay less. 
And despite the billions of dollars they're making and, and how quickly they're surpassing the studios, they're still not paying their fair share. So wages are extremely low and the hours are unbearably long. Um, Chuck, have you ever heard of the term fratter days? No. Fratter, so. fratter days is actually pretty common amongst uh, below the line workers. Fratter days are when you come to work at 2 p.m. on a Friday and work until 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. And huh. it's just one example of like the normalization of how crew members are taken advantage of by above the line yeah. departments and studios. Yeah, it's sort of like in retail world when you have to do a floor set. Yeah. That's like a very common thing is to you come in, you come in like, yeah, you come in for like an hour or two toward the end of the closing shift. And then you stay as long as you need to to get the floor set redone and often leave early in the morning the next day. But it's usually not like 7 a.m. It's more like 3 or 4 a.m. Yeah, I've actually worked. I went, It wasn't a Friday because it wasn't a Friday or Saturday. But when I was a background actor in Iron Man, I worked from about 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. the next day. Wow. Um, and it's interesting because it's like I was having a blast. Like I was having a lot of fun. But like in hindsight, there were a lot of things that were happening around me <laughs> that probably shouldn't be. Like at least three people were injured that night um, because we were running around from pretend robots. I saw two people like literally just collide into each other. Oh, and, nice. Like, they were taken away in ambulances. <clears throat> and I saw a director, not a director, like a like a camera assistant actually push an actor against a bench, like a stationary bench, because they were like running a line and he was like tagging them. The last person in line, he like just kind of pushed them past the camera and they fell over. And yeah. Um, well, and that's and that's that kind of speaks to that uh, that infamous thing that's in the movie Teen Wolf with the guy with his pants off, like his pants open. Oh, yeah. There's that, there's that whole thing. And the actual story behind that is, is, you know, as the extras, they're there for hours, like because they're doing a shoot that was right. uh, it might have been like a Friday shoot. I don't know. But the story goes is the guy was just like it was hot. He was uncomfortable sitting and standing in bleachers all the time. And so he like it was or was it a sheet? Anyway, they unbuttoned the, the person unbuttoned their pants to sort of like relax. I heard about that. And then during like a break and then it was suddenly like, all right, action is like, oh, crud, he forgot to he forgot to. <laughs> They, they forgot to button back up and it turned into like that was the take that yeah. that, that was the one they used. And uh, and so now it became kind of an urban legend. Um, but I just think, you know, just think about that, like, like we've 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 made jokes about this. You know, Family Guy made jokes about it and it was but it's the result of, again, below the line people. Yeah. That are like there for hours. Yeah. You know, doing something. Right. Um, so <clears throat> the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, is a union that represents below-the-line workers across the entire entertainment industry. And recently, an Instagram, um, an Instagram account emerged called IA underscore stories, IA stories. This was created so that workers could come forward anonymously, anonymously and share stories and experiences of how crew has been exploited. And stories range from Hollywood stars demanding crew work through meals to crew members dying in car accidents because of long overnight hours without sleep. Um, just this month, IATSE sat with uh, AMPTP, which is the guild that represents producers and studio executives, um, to negotiate livable wages, fewer hours, and more days off. Um, but negotiations keep resulting in a standstill as studios and producers refuse to budge or meet demands. Because of this, IATSE took a vote within its ranks of hundreds of thousands of workers to authorize an industry-wide strike. Uh, this response was an overwhelming yes to authorize a strike. Uh, 
And as of today, if negotiations continue to fail, more than 60,000 workers will begin a nationwide strike, which would be unprecedented and could lead to one of the biggest strikes in American history and would bring the entire entertainment industry to a grinding halt, like the entire entertainment industry. Right. Movies, TV, reality TV, sports. I, mean, I don't know about sports, maybe, who knows. But, I mean, if it happens, and it's, it's scheduled for Monday. They already have a schedule now. Uh, if it happens, it's going to be more than 60,000. Like, it's 60,000 is starting. <laughs> yeah, though I did read that, I think there's a couple of productions, I think, with HBO or something, that they were, like, union contracts that are, like, for a year or whatever. So, like, mm-hmm. though, like there's a few things that, because of contracts, will have to hmm. go through. Um, but, yeah, but uh, overwhelmingly, yeah, you know, and, you know, some of our listeners may remember the writer's strike. Yes. Back in, what was it, 2009? 2008, uh, the year before I, I, I arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, if, if you don't remember, it was not a good time. <laughs> <laughs> no. A lot of TV shows and movies did not survive. They did not survive. And on top of that, right, we got like really bad stuff. Right? Wasn't Iron Man 2 a result of yes. the writer's strike? Yeah. Like that's they kind of the reason the why it, yeah. Um, there's all kinds of things like that, that happened, um, that, that, that have, you know, impacted, I mean, obviously it worked out in the long run for Iron Man, but, um, still it's weakest entry in the, <laughs> in that series of movies. Well, I don't know, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Um, and you're going to see it. it. And it's it's and it, be and it, interesting, and it all t- it, it it boils down. I, I I'm loath to, or I'm hesitant to quote Tyler Durden, <laughs> because people who quote Tyler Durden are a certain type of person that you should probably avoid. Because yeah. um, we're taking it back. Lest, lest we forget, Tyler Durden is the villain of Fight Club. Yeah. Um, but Tyler does every now and then have a couple of pretty wise nuggets, and one of his wise nuggets is, you know, you don't mess with the people who cook your food. Yeah. You know, and it, that's that. But that, that that applies in a lot of different ways. Right. Like, I don't know. Like, it's just funny to me to think about. You're obviously trying to save money by not paying the amount of money these these groups want. Right. So your, your thought is you're going to save money. But if they go on a strike, how much money you're going to lose? Oh, I know. Yeah. And isn't it really just sort of in your best interest to just give these people what they need? It's not even what they want. It's what they need. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, you know, I just, but of course, right. As you, you know, and people are, you know, one of the things you'll see, cause I remember, I remember when baseball players struck, that was the, 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 the major league baseball strike was sort of the event when I was a younger kid that sort of turned me off of sports. Cause it was like, Oh, these guys are making millions of dollars and they're striking, you know, all that, you know, and maybe it's a different conversation, but it's, you know, you're thinking like, well, these, you know, these students, they make millions of dollars. Why can't they, you know, like, you know, these are just ungrateful. But like you said, when, when a movie is given a budget, like, let's say a movie is given like a budget of like, you know, like, like $40 million right. and they want to attract a particular star to, to be in that movie because they know that that will increase the box office. Well, they agree to pay them a certain amount of money and then they get receipts after, right? From like ticket sales or that. So, you know, that was sort of the standard before Scarlett Johansson's whole thing with Disney. Um, yeah, depends so on the like day. they, 
but yeah, but they but they, generally they budget they budget a salary right. for the or stipend or whatever for the for the actor. So if you're trying to attract somebody who commands a you know commands a salary or stipend of like, so say we got a forty million dollar movie and you got somebody who's like one actor is like a ten million dollar stipend. Yeah. Well, there's ten million dollars on your budget, right? And you want two or three more actors and they and they total up to a couple million bucks. Well, then now you've got to pay. So you you're paying your talent right there. Then the rest of that money has to go to marketing it has to go to your camera crew it has to go to film it has to go to power it has to go to insurance it has to go to set building it has to go to clo- like you yeah, know when you it's when like you running like a breaking, small city right like it, it, you know having having come to know you and be friends with you has really made me kind of realize how much goes into building and making these things yeah. and i just I, I tell i tell my wife all the time when we watch like making of you know segments like when we watch the the Mandalorian behind the scenes series. It's just like, I look at John Favreau and I'm just like, I can't imagine doing this. Yeah, I know. Just imagine. I remember saying like, I was like, and this is the sort of thing JP like wants to do. Like, (laughs) it's just crazy to me to think about all the different moving pieces, all the things that go into making. I mean, you know, Star Wars, you know, is just an example because you have costuming, you have weapons tech, you have all that. And then you have creature design, you have computer technicians, you've got I mean, there's just so many things that go into all of this. And these are all people who need to make money right. to live. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it, and this is coming at a very, as you said, is an interesting time because we've got similar conversations happening in the video game industry, right? A lot of press in the recent years about some of the vid- various video game publishers forcing their employees to work these insane long hours that are crazy unhealthy in order to crank out video games by deadline. And even then, they're putting out games that are incomplete. Right. Um, and then when the game is incomplete, they have to start patching, and so they demand these employees continue working even after the game is released. Um, you know, so this, this, this stuff is really starting to come up in yeah. the pop and culture consciousness. I was just going to say, like, uh, I think as of today, today, uh, 10,000 John Deere factory workers are on strike right now. Um, and right. a, I forgot what the number is, but there are Kellogg cereal. Oh yeah. Uh, employees on strike right now too. So this is just happening like across just all over the nation right now. Like you're going to see more of it. Um, Right. The pandemic is definitely, the pandemic is definitely really exposed. You know, what, uh, it's like, I I think I've said this a few times on this show, but there was a, there was a tweet that I saw early on in the pandemic where someone said, you know, we're, it's a paycheck to paycheck government with paycheck to paycheck companies being, you know, employed by paycheck to paycheck people. Like how is this ever supposed to be sustainable? Yeah. Um, and you realize, right, like the fact that we were, you know, it was like, you you think essential workers and you're like firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses. And then it was like, oh, also McDonald's employees, right? Grocery store workers, baristas, right? Like these were, you know, they're not essential, but think about it. They are right. Because like McDonald's, right? A good example, McDonald's, one of the few places that is often open 24 hours a day. And if you're a nurse working a shift and you get off at three, four in the morning and you're hungry, where are you going to go? McDonald's. So like, McDonald's needs to be open in order to support, you know? So it, it, it is a fascinating, you know, I think, I think the pandemic has kind of made us, a, I mean, some of us, not all of us, obviously, but made a lot of us more aware of not only how thin the line is, yeah, but how much we do need all these moving parts 
yeah. in order to function. And, and it is interesting now that a lot of these companies have started like, Oh, we'll throw, we'll give you more money now. If you come back to work, if we'll throw the, you know, they're, they're starting to kind of like realize like it was, it should have, it was in their best interest all along. Yeah. I actually saw, I saw a very funny tweet today where someone had posted a picture of like their factory or something, not a factory, but like their warehouse. And they were like, we posted the job for people to come unpack this stuff for $14 an hour and nobody showed. And we had to unpack it all by ourselves. It was terrible. And someone's like, you're complaining about your own offer. <laughs> that is really funny. <laughs> um, so I would just like to go on record and voice my own personal support for IATSE and all below the line crew members, because not all of them are part of the IATSE. Not, not everyone can join the union. But I, I just want to say I support them all and I stand with them in solidarity. Um, they've given everything to be a part of this thing that I love called cinema. And while I've always admired the auteurs, the writers, and the artists, none of it would ev- would have ever left the page without the crew. And um, I believe they deserve probably much more than what they're negotiating. So yeah, I mean, you think about it, right? We put all this attention on like the director and the actors yeah. and all of that, but arguably, in any particular shot that you're watching. You know who's one of the most important people? Pink shorts guy holding the boom mic. <laughs> exactly, yes. You know, <laughs> without that guy, you wouldn't hear a thing. You know what? We always hear stories of these, like, uh, of, like, you know, Spielberg and Lucas famously went on vacation to Hawaii after they finished their movies. Do you think Pink shorts guy got to go to Hawaii? No, he had to, he had to go to his next job. I hope that, uh, I hope that someone here... Hears us and is like, who's pink shorts guy? <laughs> I love that. I love that it's now become a thing for people to dress like pink shorts guy at Star Wars conventions. It's great. Yes, I love it. Obviously, it's a, it's a mental toll to be a film director to have to like keep track of all the moving parts and everything yeah. like that. I mean, frankly, I don't know how it's, it's. I don't know how they do it. Like, I don't know how a movie like. I mean, I know how it gets made, but like, I think it's a miracle if any movie gets made, and to be in charge right. of all that must be taxing. But at the end of the day. If you're Steven Spielberg, once you're done, you can go to Dubai or something, or right, or, or or you can you know you can you can be like I'm gonna take a few years off. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because ET's still making money. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it's yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I, I, it would be nice, right? I mean, I don't know what the solutions are, but it would be nice if like the crew could get some money from. I mean, there's. Is, a, I mean, their their demands are are nights, weekends, and 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 breaks. <laughs> like, but I'm what, just saying, like, would it be nice? Would it be nice if you got like if you worked in you know if you worked as crew and you got like maybe it's a couple, maybe it's like a, a few checks here and there, a few bucks, here, you know, but it's like some kind of gross percentage of like whatever the movie that you've worked on is continuing to make that you're seeing some of that money uh-huh. to you, right? Like, wouldn't that be nice for them to get that? Like, not saying like in, in replacement of other things, but like I don't know, I, I sort of feel a little bit like if. If something that you helped make is generating income, that's one of the reasons why I have such a big problem with Instagram. Instagram's making its money off of my labor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about the fact that you're going online and you're posting photos and you're doing the work to like make the photo look good, right? Especially if you're using filters and all these things and you're putting it out there. Well, you've done a bunch of work 
and you're not seeing a penny from it unless you're like some kind of super influencer. You and I basically but work for Apple and Spotify. I know. I, I'm very concerned about the fact that the church in this like pandemic age has been like, we got to be on the internet. You got to be online. You got to do all this stuff. You got to have, and I'm like, well, because I mean, I, I went to seminary with everybody. Like every church has to have a Facebook profile. And I'm like, well, hold on now. Like at first I was on board that I started thinking about like, well, why am I, why, why should we have to, why should we have to support a particular company's platform? Like that seems weird to me mm-hmm. that we're basically saying you have to buy this thing of this company. It doesn't really care about you. Okay. So like I do all my church stuff on YouTube. So YouTube is a gatekeeper to my church stuff. Like that's weird. Yeah. Why am I allowing them a Christian, a company that has nothing that, that, that cares nothing about the ways of Jesus to now be the like, and you better not, I don't know, it's just any, an interesting, you better not edit in any copyrighted work, Chuck. You better not uh, put in any music or, or video clips or else, you know, we could kick you off. I know we've, I mean, we've, we get every, every week, we get some kind of copyright claim on every video, every church video that we post. Jeez. And even when we weren't doing any music, because all the music we, we, we check, we vet the rights, we know we, we paid for all the licensing and everything that we're supposed to. And even when we weren't doing any music, we were getting these copyright claims. And all I can think is that there's one tune that we use for a, for a song that's a, uh, it, for a prayer that was written by Queen Lilio Kalani that that must somehow be like under some weird copyright thing that we they should don't tell have. you what I don't it know. is it doesn't really? all it says it just says like copyright claim like this isn't like it's basically like this isn't egregious enough to take down your video but you cannot monetize this weird maybe it's because it's a church video but yeah but it's like but i'm like we're, we we put it under the religion banner which means it's non-monetizable anyway cuz we right. do what we do to kind of avoid getting ads popping up in the middle of our church service videos so Strange. Uh, it is very weird. But anyway, this is all right in service of the bigger conversation that we want to have today, which is about what topic, JP? Capitalism. And we're going to talk about Capitalism. why crew members make so little. It's because we got to increase those profits with the boys up top. Yeah, it's this conver- this this makes you think about, uh, you know, I got I'm going to bring another Chuck Polinick. Uh, line in here. Okay. I got, I'll just say, I used to be, you know, I mean, in college, I was a big Chuck Pollock guy. Yeah. Like, really yeah. into it. I got kind of got over it because I started to realize, like, I don't know. I just got over it. He served his purpose. Um, yeah. The last book of his that I read was called Pygmy. I didn't even finish it. I thought it was really bad, actually. There was just a lot of stuff in it. Uh, fairly gra- graphic rape scene in it that just really turned me off. Anyway, um, I, uh, but it, it, there's a line in Pygmy where, because the, the plot of it is this, like short person from some other some unnamed country has been uh this this government has like sort of bred like pygmy people and like infiltrated american adoption agencies and like played off the guilt of like midwestern evangelicals to adopt these like foreign children but they're not actually children they're actually adults that are like spies from like some country to try to take down the U.S. from the inside or whatever. It's written in the vernacular of this guy, which is very weird. But he uh, he uh, he makes some comment about the about the American capitalistic system and the capitalism itself was as an economic system was conceived when slavery was a thing, Phew. and so the nature of and so the nature of capitalism as it was conceived was designed at a time when someone was working for nothing. 
and that as soon as you take that away, capitalism doesn't really work anymore. And so that explains why the continued problems that we see in capitalistic societies is that we keep trying to get someone to make something for us for free. And so with that in mind, Instagram, it fits perfectly into that model, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not forced, I'm not like forced, you know, under threat of like whip to like produce content for Instagram, but there is that, but it is rooted in that idea of, I need somebody to do free labor so that I can make money off of it. Right. Um, create a demand for you to use it. Yeah. Well, I have a very technical definition of capitalism that I'm, I'm like dying to share. Do it. Okay. So what is capitalism? Capitalism is an economic system or mode of production that replaced feudalism. Its conception began sometime in the 14th or 15th century and finally secured itself in the last quarter of the 18th century during the English Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution of 1789 as the dominant economic system of the world. The principal characteristic of capitalism is that it is dominated by capital and by the drive to accumulate more capital. Capital in this instant is wealth to be invested. It must be economically active in order to achieve an increase in its own value, which is to say it's like production for the sake of production or accumulation for the sake of accumulation. In order, to, in order to obtain this, it must extract profit from wage labor and then reinvesting it into the employment of more labor to further expand its value. What drives accumulation of capital is competition between rival capitalists to continue reinvesting and accumulating more capital lest they be driven out of business. As it grows, the wealth of capitalism becomes concentrated in even larger and fewer units also known as multinational corporations. But it has also developed ever-deepening contradictions and created in ever-larger numbers the international working class, or as uh, some German philosopher put it, the gravediggers of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> in summary, a capitalist is someone who lives strictly off of their investments, who is in a position to employ others, and will at the end of the year make more money than what they started with. Workers are the people who perform the labor that keeps the wheels of the whole machine turning. Capitalists own the means of production while the workers keep the production moving. The thing for me is like, I'm not an, I'm not an economist. Yeah. And you know, my, 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 my wife actually kind of is. And so we've had some interesting conversations about that. Should have brought her on, that'd have been fun. Hmm. For me, like when I think about capitalism and where my interests in capitalism and critiquing capitalism is, you know, not just from the, the economic standpoint, which itself we've already addressed a little bit is, you know, presents its own issues, yeah. but is the more insidious nature of how the way that capitalism has infiltrated other aspects of life oh, like every aspect yeah yeah but like like the sense that we like you know that like we, we we've it allows us to conceive of our bodies as like a product mm -hmm. that we own right. and we therefore you know respond to it as though it's a you know it's like this it's a product that we own um or that people are like commodities yeah you know and like and then, and, and, you know, of course, the, the, the one that we talk about all the time, you and I talk about when it comes around every year in June, when all the rainbow flags go up on all the stores in the mall. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, right. Like, 
the, that what's what's happened with this is like pride, right? The rainbow flag and the pride symbol was just more of like a, you know, we are gay, we're lesbian, or you know, or we don't fit into, you know, straight sexuality or whatever. You know, this is our identifying marker of just that, right? And it was sort of like a symbol that was used to let kind of people know that this establishment, like a bar or whatever, was safe for you. Like, you know, we like, you know, we know who you are like that, you know, we know what's going on kind of thing. Yeah. But like that symbol now has been co-opted by capitalistic interests. And now we've created a lifestyle that we try to market to people. And now, like, it's very interesting that we've created this whole thing where, you know, to be queer is now to like dress a certain way and act a certain way and go to certain events. And, you know, it just becomes like stuff to buy. Right. Because it's become profitable. Right. You go, you got to go to the parade. You got to go to the festival every yeah. year. And like every city has one now, which is like, okay, cool. Like it's under the auspice of like celebrating this element of, 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 of a society that there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that then it's like corporate sponsored tents that are at it buy this thing. Here's, you know, it just, yeah. it becomes very, again, it becomes very, you know, money-making and again just capitalistic right i was reading this book by this author named mark fisher um called capitalist realism and he described capitalism as like uh, the monster from john carpenter's the thing where mm -hmm. it just like it grows and it feeds and it just becomes like an amorphous thing that like it transforms itself to look like the thing that you're familiar with Right. And that you don't even sometimes don't really know that you're interacting with it, but it's still like controlling you somehow. And, yeah. um, and it's 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 strange because that, that that's what you're talking about. Like LGBTQ, there was a time when it was like countercultural and it was taboo and it was, you know, outliers of, of society. And now, like you said, Waylon Yutani <laughs> with their pride flag. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing grabbing and appropriating and, and, and transmogrifying. Right. Right. And it's it just shows that, like, our existence has become intrinsically linked to the to the ebbs and flows of industry. Right. That is to say and the market like dictates like everything we do now. Right. And we'll look at Christianity. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, especially evangelical Christianity. Right. Evangelical Christianity is probably the most capitalistic form of Christianity because, well, for starters, it transformed the proclamation of the gospel into a capitalistic enterprise. Like maybe initially didn't involve money, but it's still the idea of that. Because like when I read the when I read the New Testament and you see when Paul preaches to people, one of the things that really struck me in recent years is that you, you never hear Paul say, here's how to get to heaven when you die. That never shows up for Paul. Hmm. Paul instead is he's proclaiming things like, here's how you know your sins are forgiven. Here's how you can live a life liberated from the guilt of sinfulness in this world today. Like that's like the the eternal destiny piece is like extra. Interesting. Right? The message that he's preaching is like, here's what this means for us when we live now. Like here's how right. So you know, the way that I that I talk about it is, you know basically every other religion out there is telling you here's X, Y, and Z that you have to do to like hopefully achieve salvation someday. Mm -hmm. Christianity makes this radical claim. No, you are saved. Like humanity is saved. It's yeah. done. Right. Right. You don't have to worry about eternal destiny. 
the now you're able to live now, now, like, what does it mean to live as though you're saved? What does, what does it mean now? Right. And that's, and that's what the book of Romans is all about. I've been doing a Roman study on the church's website, put in a plug on that on our YouTube channel, but it's, you know, so it's, it's raising this question of what that means now, but like evangelicalism has its birth with the great awakening movement in the United States where it changed from where the preaching of the gospel was you're destined for hell. And then after people were sort of like, well, I can always make a deathbed confession. They were like, oh, well, Jesus could come back at any moment now and the world's going to be destroyed. And what's going to happen if you're, you know, if suddenly Jesus, Jesus comes back, where are you going to be? It could happen any moment. Now, suddenly it's like, oh, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to get it right. Right. So now it becomes, I now need to accept Jesus, right? He is the means by which I then get this other thing which is heaven someday, right? So it's not actually about Jesus, it's about heaven. Jesus becomes the means to the end. Jesus is the product that you acquire to achieve the next thing, which is basically the narrative of every infomercial you've ever seen. <laughs> right. Your There's life demand. is messed up. Here's Yeah. Yeah. So the, and, the demand is to and, go to heaven and, and the supply is Jesus, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then now, what is what then what does evangelical Christianity create in the 70s? A Christian culture, yeah. which involves Christian bookstores to buy Christian products. You know, now you have Chick-fil-A where you can go buy Christian fast food. You have Christian coffee shops where you can buy Christian coffee. You have Christian movies where you can go and see your own like so now like it fits perfectly into what every other you get, you know, so like Christianity does this very successfully. Now look at how corporations are doing it with like LGBTQ people. Right. right. It's the same kind of thing. It's 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 like, all right, here's this subculture that we're going to package and sell to you. Right. Now we're starting to see it happen. We saw it kind of happen with, you know, within black America. Right. It's like, you know, broadcast television. You know, I, I sort of think about the fact like in the 80s, you know, we 70s and 80s broadcast TV had black families on at prime time. We grew up with Cosby Show. We grew up with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We grew up with Family Matters. Maybe yeah. not the most like you know, wholly, you know, like solid, you know, examples of this, but like for its time, it was progress. Right. And you and I grew up regularly seeing, you know, black families on TV. And that was, it wasn't considered like odd. Oh yeah. UPN or WB before UPN was like, you had, I mean, you had shows about Asians and black people and yeah, like it was very diverse channel. Well, but that's what I was going to get to is that, is that you had these shows on on the the big three networks or whatever, and then the or the big four, I guess, with Fox or then UPN shows up, and suddenly it's like, oh well, they they got that now. <laughs> like, well, and then you like, start seeing that you start seeing like the diversity go down, and then when cable becomes ubiquitous, you get BET, right. and now suddenly it's like, oh well, we can give we can give black people their own network. Now we'll put it behind a paywall that they might not be able to afford to get, but we'll give them their own network. I mean, I know that BET was started by a black man, so I want to be careful how I talk about it. But I do find it fascinating that as capitalism throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, we see like Christianity is very successful. Evangelical Christianity is very successful in this. You know, we're starting to see that a similar model is being applied to a stratified society in terms of how we identify or whatever. Right. And this gets into identity politics. So I know the whole thing. But I just think it's really fascinating that it seems to be very capitalistic. It's like, okay, we've, you know, basically 
Abercrombie and Fitch. We're going to sell you this lifestyle. Right. I just, it's just something I just can't help but notice that like Gideon's this idea, right? Capitalism creates the demand and then tries to provide the supply, right? So like we're going to create an identity. Like we're the ones who are going to sit and say like, okay, in order to be this group, here are the products you need to buy, right? Like it started out with like goths and jocks and whatever, but now we're like making it into like races and sexual identities. And, and I, I it's just, it's, it's messed up to me. I, I have something here that yeah. I, that I thinking about like, you know, capitalism and, and how it's affected the church, but it, it feels because of the nature of capitalism, because it's always ever growing and reinvests itself and grows, reinvests and grows. You know, I almost can't quite blame the church for being capitalistic, evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. Um, and I thought it was interesting. It never really occurred to me that, like, when Martin Luther nailed those 99 theses. 95. 95. Sorry. 95. Sorry. Sorry to my Reformed friends out there. Um, when, <laughs> Martin Luther, <laughs> when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door, that was happening, happening during the decline of feudalism. Yep. Right? And yep. that's when capitalism was starting to just little little baby steps at the time. So it's like Protestantism and capitalism are almost kind of linked in a way. Yeah, I mean, think about like Adam Smith's whole, you know, the invisible hand free market, yeah. all that stuff, right? Like he's writing about that as a, you know, within a world that's sort of post, I mean, it's you know, sort of post-Protestant, right? It's, I don't know if Smith is a deist or whatever, but, you know, there's this relation to like the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah establishing in this new world free from monarchy i mean it definitely is i mean the fact that the reformers were able to make breaks with their religious authorities coming right around the same time that the peasantry starts making breaks with the monarchs yeah there's no coincidence there no not at all yeah and the fact that both are using the printing press as a technological means to disseminate their ideas is no coincidence right so we're we're you know people have uh, been talking about that we're living in another kind of age similar to the Protestant Reformation, political reformations in Europe that we're having that now. It's like, I hope so. Phyllis Tickles, a religious thinker, she, she's dead now, but she wrote a book called the great emergence. And she made this argument that every 500 years, there's some kind of upheaval right. that, that happens and that we're living through it now. And that that always coincides with some kind of technological innovation and the internet is akin to the printing press and it's allowing for, this further social upheaval and you know it started it's it, it started with religion it's hit politics and now we're starting to see it with real really hit economics i want to get into the morality of oh, yes. capitalism because i'm interested Yay. in your thoughts Yay. because this I'm, I'm still interested in how how the church is affected by it and how it's linked to it because when i when i look at what capitalism requires it's not just the successes, but also the failures. Like you have to mm -hmm. beat your opponent. You know, it depends right. on people losing money. It depends on people living, living in misery, essentially. To me, that makes it an immoral system. What do you think? Mm -hmm. um, I think I agree. Just as an aside, I can't, I, as we're talking about competition, it just sort of dawned on me. I was like, oh, that's probably why America is so sports obsessed versus other countries in oh, the totally. world. That yeah. it, it, it's all part of our our capitalistic impulses. So Milbank, John Milbank, this, this, this fella right here, 
who wrote this impossibly difficult book to read. <laughs> Theology and social theory, is that what they said? Yep, yep. It was I'm like sure a, it's a page turner. Beyond secular reason. He does a really great job of basically tracing from Duns Scotus to the modern age how like how the development of secularism and how the development of secularism is actually violence. Anyway, um, very interesting book. It was sort of a, it's been one of these books that all modern theologians have kind of had to comp- kind of had to deal with because it, it was just sort of a landmark thing. And he developed a, out of it came a movement of theology called radical orthodoxy. But he, he makes this interesting comment in one of his articles about gift exchange, where he talks about how Christianity, we, we operate on the, we operate on the presumption that the highest form of good is giving up one's life so that another person may live. You know, even Jesus says something to this effect, right? Like, you know, you know, no greater love is anyone than this is who gives up life for their friends. Mm-hmm. But even Jesus didn't necessarily do that. His whole enterprise was the resurrection, right? Was to defeat death. So even Jesus knew that like death wasn't like the end, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the loss of his life and like his like annihilation for the sake of humanity, right? Jesus knew that dying and living again is the thing that would save humanity. So Milbank takes a cue from this German uh, philosopher, not the one you're thinking of, uh, (laughs) Karl Marx, uh, Robert Spamon, who makes an argument that there is actually a better instance of good than the kind of gift exchange that we talk about. So again, like he talks about, Spamon talks about that there's basically two ways to feed the homeless. You can hand them a sandwich, right? This is a paraphrase. This is my paraphrase of Spamon's argument. But like you can, you can like make them a sandwich, right? In which case I'm giving up from my bread and my, you know, materials to make the sandwich. Like I'm giving up something of mine and giving it to them. And it's a one-way exchange. I'm giving you something at my expense so that you can benefit. You benefit, I lose, right? Like that's, we consider that to be like the highest morality. However, that's not the only way that you can feed a hungry person. Because the other way you can feed a hungry person is you can invite them to a banquet. And if you invite them to a banquet, everyone is getting something and no one is effectively losing, right? right? Because we're sharing. And the argument is that that's ultimately what Jesus is, is doing is he is making the means possible to invite us to a banquet so that we, and if you think about it, the book of Revelation ends with a wedding feast. So like the vision of Christianity is that we are all going to be invited to something where we all equally share in it. Yeah. No one is losing, everyone is gaining. So that's my way of saying that I agree that a market system based on the idea that someone needs to lose right. in order for someone else to gain doesn't actually embody the sense of good, of goodness that Christianity proclaims. And capitalism is so insidious that it has reinterpreted the Christian message for us to not see that fact. Right. So anyway, yeah, so that's just my long way of saying like that I agree. I don't think it's an, I think, I think it is an immoral way of living. Do you know what, uh, what Bible verse sticks out to me when I think about the church and capitalism? Which one? I'm going to guess Acts. No. Oh. I was going to say 2 Corinthians 6.14. Okay. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Because to me, I think if capitalism were a person, I think of a very amoral person. 
whose existence is to only accumulate. Oh, you mean <clears throat> someone who's once in elected office? Uh, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I also think we should do what we should do, Chuck. I think we need to, to distinguish like what a capitalist is because I think that there are a lot of people in this country who call themselves capitalists, but actually aren't. Right. And not because, because they, it, there, is, there is a definition of a capitalist. And if your Mima, who's posting Facebook memes about Tucker Carlson, calls herself a capitalist, she, she's not. <laughs> right. Because this is the thing. I, I've always heard people talk about capitalism as like the power of capitalism is that like it allows me to vote with my dollar. Yeah. And so like if I want to, you know, like it and, and what I had a friend, I had a friend in seminary who used to say like capitalism is great because it's just sort of like. Like I walk into a place and say, I have money that I want to give you who wants to take my money, right? Like that's, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the, the power of it. And, you know, I, and I, and, and that's the thing I think part of this conversation, cause you and I talked about this when we first started talking about this topic a while back, um, where it was like the, the socialist YouTube personality that when it find, when it comes out that they've made like hundreds of thousands of dollars from ad revenue, right. that now suddenly they're being called a hypocrite. Yeah, and it's like, well, no, 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 no. Like, you're basing that off of this idea that capitalism means that if you make like, the, the capitalism is just about making money, and that other economic systems are not about making money, and that is right. completely inaccurate. Totally wrong. Yeah, like it's. I mean, um, it's it's almost like purposefully wrong. Like, um, right. It. it to be a capitalist, you have to be able to employ people and have like many people under your employ. And right. you have to be, you should be able to live off of your investment, like pretty, pretty comfortably. Right. Um, like a good, like a classic capitalist. Well, a good one in pop culture is Lord Grantham, okay. sort of, because I mean, he's, he's inherited wealth, but right. Like the whole point of like Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey is he is not working. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, yeah, but he is employing lots of people mm -hmm. and he is living entirely off of the inheritances that he has received and that there is some like buy and sell things going on of properties in order. But like he understood, first of all, he understands himself as having a moral obligation to employ people. Right. That's one thing that that's one thing that like the English monarchical system and, and its remnants of feudalism has right, is the idea of like it sort of it's sort of adjacent to that whole idea of a divine right of Kings that like, if God has called you to be in this position, right. he has blessed you in this position. You have a obligation to care for people beneath you, hmm. right? You have a, you have an obligation to use your wealth to benefit other people. Right. America didn't necessarily have that because all of our aristocracy were largely so-called self-made millionaire type people, <laughs> right? These are people, you know, uh, but even then, there's really no such thing as a self-made million. Very few people have ever gone from like nothing in their pocket to like gold buildings. They had to have a lot of help. And so, yeah. So like what you're saying is like, yeah, that when you get, so like you think about like the Rockefellers, right? Carnegie. I mean, Jeff right? these are people that, but, but I'm saying like Rockefeller and Carnegie, like by the end of their lives, right? These were people who were living off of their investments. They weren't actually working to make their money, yeah. but they were employing people and they're very different than Jeff Bezos in that they saw a bit of a moral obligation to build things for the common good, right? Like the, you know, the, the rail system, uh, libraries, like these were things that were the result of, of these wealthy people feeling they had a moral obligation to give back because they had been given to in I, some ways. I wonder if that's because of the, the time period they were, they were in, you know, because yeah. our relationship to, 
capitalism definitely changes over time. Right, because like right now we've got Jeff Bezos with an offensive amount of money. Yeah. And who just sent Kirk to space, by the way? I know, which is awesome, kind of right. (laughs) But how are we? How are we? But like, how is how is how is Jeff Bezos' offensive amount of money benefiting you and me? I have no idea. Like, he's not building a library that my kids can go to, right? At least Andrew Carnegie did that. I mean, I, I saw a great video with William Shatner in space this morning. Does, does that count? <laughs> it was great, dude. I don't know if you've seen it, but like. I read, I read, I read uh, Shatner's, uh, he, dude, he was like a little kid, man. It was funny because the moment he like comes out of his chair, he looks out the window, he just goes, weightlessness. <laughs> like in the most <laughs> William Shatner thing you've ever heard. I have to check that out. <laughs> He's like, I can't believe it. I'll tell you what, I can't believe it. That man is 90. I know. Is he really? Good Lord. He's 90 years old. He's 90? I didn't know that. Right. I think he's like close to the same. He's like the same age as Patrick Stewart. And like Patrick Stewart's showing his age. (laughs) He looks fantastic. Um, He does. So I think that the reason why I want to make that distinction is that, first of all, we we need to start educating people that like these, these words mean things. Capitalist means something. Socialist means something. Socialism is not. There's this great meme on Twitter that uh, ever since I talked to you about Hassan Piker and his house, the meme is like, socialism is when no house. When no house. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> and of course, before that, that's sort of synthesized from another meme, which is that socialism is when the government does stuff. And the more the government does, the more socialist it becomes. That's the meme. It's not, yeah, it's not I, real. <laughs> did you did you read that article I sent you from the Living Church about socialism? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was pretty great because like the big the argument like like socialism and communism are not the same thing, right? A lot of people when they hear socialism they they think oh yeah or Soviet Russia. It's like well, yeah. no 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 these are very different. <laughs> there's so many different modes. Yeah, there's there's yeah lots of different. And and I thought it was interesting that the, the socialism he was sort of speaking about was it was like social democracy, which is right probably as good as it'll get in this country. I don't think people realize that there's like no. There's like no socialist representation in our government aside from maybe Bernie Sanders, maybe the squad, and like that's it. And maybe some people at like a local level, but even then, ugh, microcosm. Um, right. And, 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 but like it's because our media machine is so, especially right wing, so like anything to the left of conservatism is communism essentially, right? So, but Joe yeah. Biden, he's a Marxist. Like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he's a Marxist. Yeah. Joe Biden is. It's so funny. I, I will say one of the one of the one of the things I've derived some 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 pleasure out of yeah. is right. Everybody was so afraid of Hillary, and like <laughs> Hillary has like she, you've got her reasons, right? Like you can you can find legit reasons why people are scared of Hillary, right? Yeah. Um, Barack Obama, right? Like even though nobody would say it, it was because he was black. Right, and that's why people are scared. He's black. He's different. He has a Muslim name. Yeah. Um. He's named after. He's named after Muhammad's horse that carried him into heaven. Um. <laughs> that's true, actually. The really? Is, oh, that's actually pretty Muhammad cool. Yeah. You know, you could see where people were getting like, oh, like oh, Pete Buttigieg. Like, I know he's boring, but he's gay, and so we've got something we can like, you know, yeah. make people scared of with him or whatever. And it's like Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden. Like, he's just. He's just sort of like your he's sort of a fun uncle. I mean, there's just <laughs> the, the fact that like they have to they have to dig so hard to make Joe Biden scary is very funny to me. Joe Biden is kind of embarrassing. I mean, he's yeah. He's, oh, yeah. He, 
he's he's kind of like he's kind of like Jimmy Carter. He's just sort of <laughs> like a he's there because we we just want we just want to breathe for a couple of years. I wish that Joe Biden was so good at hiding a socialist I didn't notice it. Anyhow, I I don't know. I I think these distinctions should be made. And also we're talking about like how capitalism is is evil, is immoral. That is not to say that the people who like you, you know your your mima with the Facebook memes we're not saying she's evil and immoral. Right. I just think that people just don't really know what these things are and they're being perpetu and they're they're being basically controlled by media and social media and, and Well, uh, this is precisely why that that, propaganda. that that Yeah, this is precisely why that guy put that article in the Living Church right. about socialism, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about Christianity and 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 all of this. I think the Catholic Church and, you know, Catholic adjacent churches like the Episcopal Church, you know, Anglican or Anglicanism, it's hard for them to be capitalistic. Because the nature of what we do is, you know, it, it, you know, the idea that we are the body of Christ sharing in the one bread and the one body. I mean, just our liturgical actions defy capitalism because, you know, when you, you know, when you go to an evangelical church, right, you're, you're kind of there to, you're, you're a passive participant to consume a product, right? You're there to listen to the rock band and you're there to, you know, get fed by the preacher <laughs> and go home. You know, whereas in the Episcopal Church, it's like nine times out of ten, the preacher's not good. <laughs> uh, music is, you know, music can be beautiful. Music can also be lackluster, depends on the church you go to. But at the end of the day, the main reason that you're there is to receive the Eucharist as the body of Christ gathered together, and and just like the Catholic Church. And so, like, that's the main event. So you're not actually a passive participant consuming a religious product. You're actually coming together to be constituted as the body of Christ once again. And by virtue of just that, it's always going to be a little bit resistant to bald capitalism. You can make all these comments you want about like, oh, well, you know, these churches are expensive buildings and they're whatever. Like one of the things I've been sort of thinking about lately is, yeah, like, okay, so you go to Bethesda by the Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, which is, you know, where, you know, you and I are familiar with that church where I became an Episcopalian. Like you can go to that church or you can go to Holy Trinity in West Palm Beach, a beautiful, you know, mission style church right across the water from it. Or you can go, you know, you can go to any, you know, St. Paul's K Street in D.C. in these places, these beautiful churches, the National Cathedral. And yeah, a lot of money has gone into it. But you know, what's kind of amazing what? is you can be like dirt poor sleeping on the sidewalk and you can walk into this building and you can see this beautiful stained glass. You can hear this beautiful music being performed. You can even sing and participate in that music if you want. I mean, where else is a homeless person sleeping in a public park able to drink wine out of a silver goblet, right? Like they can do that in the church. So the, 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 the power of the local church in church buildings is yes, they are they are expensive, lots of money for upkeep, all of that, but they kind of belong to no one, and because they belong to no one, they sort of belong to everyone, and and so that right there, like I'm not charging money to come walk in the door, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's just that's just the you know so yeah, you can criticize churches like ours for having expensive properties or whatever, but we sort of understood that. We sort of understand that the that the purpose of those properties isn't just for us on Sunday, mm-hmm. right? These properties are actually for the benefit of anyone who wants to experience beauty right. in an increasingly ugly world. Yeah, and I think what I like about it is that I think it recognizes that religion could be can be seen as a as a need. Like yeah, well, not, can we not, can not, we not a luxury? Well, can we take a quick comment to note 
one of the most misunderstood lines of Karl Marx's oh, work, yeah, which sure. is the whole idea of religion being the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. right? Capitalism has, you know, McCarthy era, t- you know, they took that line and they meant, they, they made it to say that Marx was saying that religion is dumbing you down, yeah. right? And even like, even like the edgy atheists, which by the way, atheists are apparently like hardcore capitalists these days, which is fascinating, um, are like, you know, I, I know we have atheist listeners. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I just want to be clear. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's true. There is an overwhelming number of atheists who are like anti-feminist, anti. Yeah. Well, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was uh, an atheist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, you know, this this line of Marx, he doesn't mean opiate of the masses in the sense that it's like trying to numb you and dull you down. Right. What he actually meant was that like it's like a balm, that like for the suffering poor of the world, religion is like where people turn to find comfort. Yeah. You know, like you have to remember opiates aren't like, we think of them as like abusing drugs or like opiates have their history as being like pain relievers. And that's, that's the context in which Marx meant that line, but it's so easy to misconstrue it. So like exactly what you're saying, right? Like religion does serve an important role in, in a society because it, it, it's there as it is, there is assistance is help. I mean, in, in some model, I mean, I think, I could get really deep into it, why I have problems with that, of even talking about religion, these sort of commodified capitalistic terms. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because I think that like making it a, pra- trying to talk about religion in pragmatic terms, I think is also succumbing to capitalistic pressure. You think so? Yeah, because I think the category of religion is capitalistic. It's rooted in the enlightenment where we're labeling everything and giving it definition, right? So once we give a definition, we can control it, right? So like, you know, what do we hear? Oh, Christianity is an Abrahamic faith. Yeah. Because oh yeah okay so we, we yeah we worship the God of Abraham just like Muslims and Jews. However, Christianity is act you know Christianity is monotheistic. Christianity is not monotheistic. Absolutely not monotheistic. Christianity is trinitarian. It's unique mm-hmm. in the religious landscape in that it is a trinitarian religion. And if you want to make it, if there's an argument to be made of how Christianity conceives of God, it is actually somewhat closer to Hinduism. Because Hinduism, though it has millions of gods, believes that those are all some form of like aspect or whatever of one god. So yeah. like Hindu, the Hindu faith is actually more closer to like our conception of Trinitarianism, right? We just, you know, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit for us. But I know someone out there is going to be like, you're wrong. And so I don't <laughs> want to get too much into it. But yeah. these labels and how even like Christians self-identify is because enlightenment people like Adam Smith or um, like Charles Williams or, or William James, who were, you know, trying to do good work in their in their philosophy of conceiving of, you know, a society like ours, especially after the Civil War, Adam Smith before that, but after the Civil War, kind of trying to like conceive of what it means to, to, to have a society, you know, a, dem- a free, a free de- democratic society created these systems of labeling us according to like species, genus, phylum, all of that kind of stuff. And we've done it with people, we've done it with organizations, institutions, and all that's done is allow us to be commodified and packaged and sold to and talked about in these sort of definite terms, right? Like, you know, religion is not just something, when it's truly observed, it's not something you do on one day a week. Right. It's all pervasive. And the idea that we create society is, oh, no, 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 you keep that over there. You don't bring that here, right? That, 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 that's rooted in, I think, capitalistic thinking because like, we want to keep you in your lane because as long as we keep you in your lane, we can sell you stuff. Right. And like, if religion 
you know, the idea of Christian, Christianity, by the way, it, it's the one, it, it, it's no surprise that capitalism has like, seems to work its most at Christianity. Cause like the heart of Christianity is like, you, you sort of, you, as virtue of Jesus, you've gained everything. Yeah. And you don't need to buy more stuff. You don't need that. You don't need to purchase things to feel fulfilled, right? Jesus has done that work for you. So it's natural that capitalism will be like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have that. Yeah. Oh, gosh, you know, true. Yeah. You know, we can't have that. We can't have a religion that says that you've, that you've got enough. Hmm. Um, so oh, we're going to transform it. Yeah. That? I said, so now we got to transform it. And so now we're going to try to put it, right? You know, like... A key distinction, by the way, between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Islam and Judaism are both religions that believe that their sacred book is their ultimate revelation of God. Christianity does not believe that about the Bible. Really? We don't believe that the Bible is a decisive revelation of God. A lot of Christians talk about the Bible as though it is, but... Uh, that's that is an incorrect interpretation of our own religion. The 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 ultimate decisive revelation of God is Jesus. The Bible has its authority because it testifies. That's why we have testament in the book. It testifies to Jesus. That's how. That's why Christians believe the Bible to be what it is. Right. So that that opens up a whole realm of biblical stuff that we could talk about at some other time. Yeah. But I find it interesting that. We want to wrench Christianity into this idea of like, okay, so here's your idea of God. Now here's this book. What's a book? A book is a product. Yes. So here's this product that is your understanding of God, right? And and it's just us being told by some kind of saying, this is what you believe. Like that's basically what it is. It's out, people outside of Christianity, outside of Judaism, outside of Islam, people saying, this is what you believe. And it's like, well, no, this isn't what we believe. Well, it's what, but it's what we need you to believe, because if you believe it the way we want you to believe it, then we can market to you. <laughs> That's right. what I think capitalism ultimately is. Interesting. Um, segwaying from that, yeah. I want to ask you about worldliness. Okay. Worldliness is something that in my background growing up as an evangelical, um, is something you avoid like the plague. Mm -hmm. um, what is worldliness? So it's funny we're talking about this. So I just I've, I've been talking about Romans, and this is where Paul kind of introduces these ideas, yeah. right? Because Paul talks about the world, right? We just last night in my class, which would be so if you're listening to this last week, our we talk about Romans 12, which is where Paul says, you know, um, do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Right. Um, Right. That's that's the classic verse about worldliness. Mm -hmm. Right. We also think about Jesus. Right. Is it Jesus who says if you if you have love for the world, you do not have a love of the father in you. Right. Um, the, the 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 idea of the world, though, this is one of those things we miss out when we don't know the Bible and its original languages and its context. Right. When we just look at it from translation, we miss things. Um, Paul, when he talks about worldliness, is he's not talking about like the earth right like not talking about nature he's not talking about the trees and the ocean and the sunsets and all that he's talking about he's talking about powers um in romans paul does this thing where he basically is setting up this dichotomy that humanity up until jesus humanity has been cast in an image of adam we've been thinking like adam which is an interesting thing because you think about adam right adam is presented in the bible 
as like the best human that ever lived. We don't talk about we talk about Adam, though he's the first sinner, but he was the he's conceived though as the best human that ever lives because you know him and Eve walked naked with God. They were closer to God than any other person has ever been. Right. You know, they 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 walked with God uninhibited, right? So Adam's better than Mother Teresa, Adam's better than King, Adam's better than Gandhi, like Adam's better than all these people. And he still messes up, right? So that's the that's sort of the, the what Paul gets at is in his argument is like here's the best human that's ever lived and he messed up. We're all equally sinners, right? So like we're we, that's why we we all equally deserve God's grace. But what Paul then builds on that is to say because of Jesus, we no longer have to live from the mindset of Adam, which is this idea that we have to grovel and worry about following rules and 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 offering sacrifices so that we can be on God's good side so that hopefully someday we won't be destroyed that instead salvation itself has just happened and so now there's a new way of living in the world mm-hmm. so when Paul gets in Romans 12 when he says do not be conformed to this world you could actually translate that as do not be conformed to this age which I like that wording better because it makes me think of like the Lord of the Rings, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, each of the, you know, there's new ages and they're all defined by, right? Like the third age or whatever, or the fourth age, or whatever begins with the defeat of Sauron. Right. So like there is an age that everyone from Isildur up until like Frodo and Aragorn and all that they live to. And that's the age, that's the, that's the age of Sauron. And once that age is done with the defeat of Sauron, they've entered into a new age, which is in the age of, you know, peace, prosperity. It's the age of the rise of men because elves are leaving. So, you know, Paul's basically saying like, we've entered into a new age. We've entered into a new epoch and we need to be conformed to that new one, not the one that's fading away. We need to, we need to live as, you know, according to this new way of being. How I see this in terms of like, you know, we talk about worldliness. Well, worldliness is like, you know, we put our, when we put our faith in say like America, Right. America is not going to last forever. No. Like we just have to be real about that. Like will will the will the continent of North America and something like the United States of America continue to exist for a long time? Probably. Probably. But what it represents on a global stage will change. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just inevitable, right? Yeah. Babylon's not around anymore, Rome's not around anymore, the British Empire's not around anymore. America won't be around in the same way anymore, right? England's still around. Rome as a city is still around. Like these places are still around, but they're just not, they don't carry the same weight. So like when we put all of our faith and trust in political systems and powers and economies and all of that, these are all going to change someday. That's the nature of them. So the good news, so the message of the gospel is like, don't put your faith in those things, put your faith in the things that are going to last. Right. Because when, when, you know, Paul spends a lot of time talking about the wrath, we we tend to talk about the wrath of God, but I'm, I'm under, so the, the possessive of God in the Greek language is not there. When Paul talks about it, he just says the wrath. He doesn't say the wrath of God. That's something that we've added as we've interpreted it in translation. What I believe Paul is actually talking about when he talks about being saved from the wrath is the word in Greek, I can't remember it right now, but it, it refers to something swelling, like fruit swelling or like the ocean teeming with life. Um, it tends to refer to like teeming with anger, rage, negative passions, things like that. So when Paul, the way I I see Paul is he's saying that the world is swelling with some kind of negative energy, 
lack of a better word, and that eventually it's going to collapse in on itself. When that happens, where are you going to be? And he's saying, if we, if we, if we stay, if we stay, if we have faithfulness to Jesus, we'll come through that wrath, which fit to me fits with like our modern scenario, right? Everyone's angry. Social media is just about people being angry all the time. And we're starting to see that it's starting to implode in on itself. And so if, if social media implodes in on itself and those of us who have like staked out our entire identities and happiness and everything on social media, like we lose it, right? It's gone. We're, we're, we're lost. But if we have our focus on Jesus, the community, the church, things like that, like it will weather the storm, right? Because like from the fall of Rome to the fall of the British Empire, the church has been around. Right. So like, so that that's that's that to me is what Paul is saying is like there are there, keep our focus on things that are eternal, not on the things that are fading away. And you know when we when we get deluded to follow the world, right? And the world is the age, right? It's something that's not meant to last. So that's how I understand it. That it's not like, oh, don't like that rock music or right, yeah. don't like them horror movies. Like that's, <laughs> you know, like enjoy them. Sure. But don't put your faith in them. Like they're not going to save you. <laughs> but yeah. there's nothing there's nothing wrong with liking these things and, 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 and celebrating the creativity of the humans that God has created to be creative. Um, yeah. That's I've probably gone on a little longer than no, I needed to for that. I think it's great. Uh, I guess it's no. I mean, I should, it should go without saying that I'm I'm trying to make a link here between worldliness and capitalism. Yeah, well, capital. Like, <clears throat> well, so worldliness is sometimes defined by what Jesus calls mammon, right? Right, and you know, and Jesus outright says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mm-hmm. Mammon is capitalism. I mean, I, I don't see how there's any other way you can try to interpret this, right? Like, in, in, in the capitalism as we're talking about, not in the capitalistic sense that we've oversimplified, where capitalism just means I work and make money. Right, yeah. Right? Like, again, capitalism is a much more narrow thing than that reality. So, like, yes. I'm not saying that making money is, like, demonic. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneurship, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not a capitalist. Yeah, entrepreneur is a French word for undertake and means to undertake a way to provide goods and services. You don't always have people under your employ. Sometimes it's just you. I mean, technically, we're entrepreneurs. Right. Podcast. It, it becomes a problem when your attempt at acquiring capital is at the expense of other people. Yeah, if you start exploiting people. Yeah. 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 Um, where, like, getting wealthy is your end goal no matter what. That's yeah. a problem. Right. But, you know, like... You really, you, you're really gifted at crocheting blankets. So like putting those on Etsy and making money, like there's nothing wrong with that. That's probably like, that's a way of your gift being able to be enjoyed by other people and you still got to eat. <laughs> so, yeah, and even if you were to like make $500,000 or something in a month and you donated it all to charity, you're not doing a socialism by doing that. No, that's you're not. We're, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Capitalism can be defined as a worldly thing. It's it's an economic system developed by human beings um, to further their own goals. Definitely not the kingdom of God. Right. Right? Shouldn't we then live a way of life free of systems that would encourage us to compete against each other for a living? Wouldn't it advance the kingdom of God to implement systems that furthered 
humanity's well-being that met their needs, shelter, food, healthcare, education. You're starting to sound a little bit like Dorothy Day. <laughs> Dorothy Day. And the, Catholic, and the Catholic worker movement. I love Dorothy Day. She's the one that said Martin Luther King learned to die every single day. Yeah. What is it? Pope, Pope John Paul II uh, was the one who made a claim that he, he talked about the, the importance of the care for the poor and in, in, in the conversation around li, uh, of um, liberty, right, of people being free, right, or liberation. And this kind of gave rise to the development of liberation theology in Latin America, nice. which is this idea of around, um, like, if our goal is to make, like, good, faithful people, right, like if the church's task is to help people, like, in their faithfulness, you know, the child that can't focus on their studies because they're hungry, yeah. right? Like that's, that's, that's not, that's not liberation in Christ. Right. So, you know, we, we need to, you know, so we need to do things to kind of, you know, to, to, to address that. And, and it gets actually, as I talk about this, it gets back to something that we find in the book of Exodus. We forget about this. This is something that I'm, I'm, I'm big on reminding people, you know, when we talk about the story of the Exodus, what do we remember? Remember Charlton Heston, let my people go. Right. But here's the interesting thing about that. We've interpreted the story of Exodus as freedom for freedom's sake. We forget that that's not what Moses says to Pharaoh. Moses actually says to Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that they can worship. Hmm. And that's and that's the thing is that I want to take the Jews to Mount to, to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain where they can meet their God. And Pharaoh says no. And that's where the showdown comes. The purpose of that is so that God's people are free to worship God. So when we are talking about, when we talk about social justice, whatever term we want to use here, right? We can't, as for Christians, it's not just like, oh, let's make it freedom for freedom's sake. Well, what is freedom for freedom's sake? Well, that gets us into the American concepts of liberty where we're free to be our own tyrant, right? Like yeah. that's, that's the problem what we're seeing now. But when we say freedom to worship, freedom to be the person God set you aside to be. That's a different conversation. And then, you know, like, I mean, that gets back to like what the Baptists were doing in the 60s with busing, right? Baptist churches, you know, they were renowned for in like the 60s and 70s for getting these fleets of school buses and driving throughout neighborhoods and picking up poor kids and bringing them to the church so they can have Sunday school, so they can go and be part of the church and hopefully get converted, whatever, right? Because they realized a lot of these kids, especially in inner cities, their kid, their parents were working, they couldn't come to church, they couldn't bring them to church, and so here was the means for them to be able to bring kids to church because otherwise they'd be unable to do it because the Baptists believed this was so important. And so here, let's have some kind of means to help people get there. The argument is that's, that's, that's a kind of socialist impulse, hmm. right? We're gonna spend a bunch of church money and not build a bunch of buildings, we're gonna buy a bunch of decommissioned school buses fix them up so that we can get poor kids to come to church because we believe that that's important, right? Like, you know, that's, that's not very, I mean, you could argue it's capitalistic, right? Because now you're getting your people in and they're likely to spend money and you know, whatever, but you know, but, it, but that impulse of that impulse of like spending money in order to benefit a wider group of people who by their own means can't, get that benefit like that doesn't seem very capitalistic to me um and so we have to remember that the church has like the, christianity has these impulses like and, and there's no way we're going to avoid the fact that the heart of christianity is a form of socialism 
right? The one, what's the first thing that the converts do? Yeah. They sell all their stuff and hold things all in common. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, in Acts, it, it, that that's 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 where Christianity is. Yeah. Now. You know, but that 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 opens up a whole other can of worms in in, in terms of politics and government that I that we that beyond the scope of what we're talking about here today. But yeah. it, 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 but again, I think it, it it sits to this this heart of what Christians are about that are, are supposed to be about is you know recognizing that people are not living liberated lives in Christ if they're having to work four jobs, if they're, if they're having to take a job working for a film crew that puts them, you know, doing fratter days away from their kids. Yeah. Um, they work so much, they haven't gotten any sleep and they die behind the wheel of a car. Right. Which, you know, is amazing to me getting back to that conversation with, with, there's really no reason with modern filmmaking that you should have to do that. Yeah. Cause like, you know, I can understand in the days where you're trying to film a night scene, right. you need to work when you've got like when weather and everything is cooperating to do it. But the fact that now with digital effects and other things, they can alter it. I mean, <laughs> the volume that they film the Mandalorian on allows for anything, right? Yeah. Like, like that ability, like the volume or something like that makes it where like, Working on a film shoot could be a nine to five job. <laughs> it totally came. I think that's like the whole point. And the thing is yeah. that once the once the, once the digital revolution happened, they learned that oh, we can work longer and do more. Because when you're shooting on film, you have like a finite amount that you can shoot in a day. Yeah. Digital, you just go and you go and you go and you go to the point where Robert Downey Jr. is like, I can't hang out in my trailer anymore. Like I'm just working all day now. <laughs> Yeah, which it, this is a this is an amazing conversation that we're getting into because I remember in 2000, 2008, 2009, something like that, um, NPR was uh, they, they revisited a thing that they had done back in the 70s where a cab driver just put on a film like a, an audio recorder in their cab and just talked, you know, with people's permission, but talked with their with their passengers just about the future. And what, you know, different people riding in cabs had to say about the future. And one of the things I remember hearing was this belief that the future, because of technology, you know, the 70s is starting to see the emergence of like computers and things like that. And so people are starting to see the potential of all this new technology that it would allow for the work week to go down to like 30 hours and that people would have more leisure time rather than work time because the automation would allow for people to have to work less. Mm-hmm. And I remember around this time, you know, my wife was a accountant and, you know, I was talking to her about, you know, she does all this work on spreadsheets. And I said, it's kind of amazing in your job that all this technology has enabled you to do your work quicker. You know, you're not having to work formulas on pen and paper. You're able to do it all through, through programming Excel. And that that should mean you work less. Yeah. But all that's happened is your industry has crammed more work into the 40 hours because we've decided that 40 hours is what we have to do. And sometimes it's like it's, it's useless work. That's where, it is the, useless, that's where the concept like, of bullshit jobs comes from. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like I was telling and I was like saying to her, I was like, but like your mental bandwidth yeah. 
is still the same. And so now you're you're mentally taxed right. higher because even though the even though the algorithm is doing that work, there's other stuff that you're having to do, right? So I don't know, it's just sort of amazing that we that we just abandon this idea that, oh, this would mean more leisure time, that somehow these corporations were like, no. We can <laughs> well, just I mean, cram more work in less time. And so like with the film industry, yeah. this should, right, again, the volume. The vo- if you guys, if listeners don't know what the volume is, if you have access to Disney Plus, watch uh, what's what's the what's the show that does the behind the scenes stuff on Mandalorian is Legacy or, what, or whatever it's called Gallery. Gallery. Yeah. But like you can find stuff on YouTube about this. It's this amazing. It's a dome basically covered in LED screens, and it creates realistic light conditions. Realistic. I mean, they use the Unreal Engine to do uh, video game engine to create these like amazing 3D scenes. And they're able to sort of set up some mild set work. But like you watch stuff in The Mandalorian, you think they're shooting on location outdoors. They are not. They are inside a a closed set. And it's it's so believable what they're able to do with it. You think about something like the volume for filming anything allows for like you can you don't have to shoot on location. You can shoot in a studio. And because it's all preserved, saved digitally, and it's almost and it's basically un unrecognizable from reality the way they do this that you could like all right it's five o'clock everybody can go home for the day (laughs) right you just basically click save on your on your screen right like the light conditions everything are the same the next day you don't have to you don't have to preserve right it just it's just sort of amazing to me that like that's what it enables but instead the logic is more like oh no 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 now we can just like cram more stuff in yeah i want to i want to address one more point before we start wrapping things up and that's laziness. One critique, of cap, one, one critique that capitalists like to use uh, if, if, we to, if we were to get rid of capitalism, the profit incentive, laziness would take over society and nobody would work. But this ignores the fact that people in our capitalist societies who work the hardest make the least amount of money. Like we're talking about IATSE, we're talking about the film crew, we talked about how hard they work compared to how hard like a Steven Spielberg works. Like they probably work, they both work pretty hard, but like Steven Spielberg can like, like I said, he can, he can, he can have an army of massage therapists show up to his house (laughs) and like make him forget about the day, you know? Right. Um, But I just, I've I've never bought that. And it's such a horrible excuse. And sometimes I want to think to myself, sometimes I think to myself, so what? Like, like I, I don't think, you know, if, if capitalism were to disappear tomorrow, Chuck, I think there is some truth. I probably would sleep for six months straight. Yeah. Like, I would just take that for a minute just to be like, you know what? I'm just going to not care for a little bit. I am going to be lazy because I've never been lazy in my entire life. Well, the other thing that this argument fails to acknowledge is that capitalism is an invented concept, which means that human societies have existed long before capitalism. Oh, yeah. And were people lazy before capitalism? No. There's been a big reassessment of of life in the Middle Ages because everybody talks about, oh, the Dark Ages, disease and death and all that. So I mean, there was elements of that. But in like the early Middle Ages, uh, or like the mid-Middle Ages, people were actually probably a little happy because they were growing crops. And so what they had to do, they got up in the morning, they tended to their fields, and then they had to do stuff in the evening. In between, they had hours of downtime and so what were they doing 
They were composing music. They were uh, coming up with stories. I mean, they're finding ways to entertain themselves, but like they were creating stuff that's of value for our society. Similarly, I wish I had it. Um, Kana is reading a book on like Hawaiian history and there's this account from like the missionaries. And this is like, he's deploring the fact that the he says the Hawaiian, like the Hawaiian is content to sit on the beach most of his day and look at the ocean. Like <laughs> he gets up in the morning, he, t you know, he tends to his, to his taro, which is, you know, it kind of grows itself. So it doesn't have to do much to it. You know, he maybe pounds the poi for a couple of hours and then during like during the rest of the day, he like goes down to the beach or maybe he plays music or maybe he dances with his buddies. He goes surfing. He goes fishing for his food for the day and then he comes home and he cooks it. And it's like, what a what a what a what a horrible, boring existence this guy has. And I'm like, wait, what? Like this is like this is the problem. Like the Protestant work ethic people come to Hawaii and they look at it and they're like, oh, they should be cramming their waking hours with labor. It's going to make them better people and more disciplined people. But it's like, yeah. no, this is what God kind of created us to be is to be people that like. You to know, be people. We, to be people, to, you know, I mean, look, you know, like Hawaii had this very, you know, Hawaii, Native Hawaiian culture has this very elaborate ritualistic system, you know, like you catch a fish and there's like prayers and stuff like involved with, you know, like all of it. And like there's dancing and, you know, just all these different things that go on with it. And it's just sort of like the celebration of what has been given. Right. And that to me is like, that's what that's what we're supposed to be doing, not not you know, not, not cramming our waking hours with mundane labor, like you said, bullshit jobs yeah. just to fill time to justify. It's just such a weird, I don't know, but I think, yeah, it, it, I, and the thing is, is that humanity, human history has shown, I mean, look at, look, go out to like the Maasai. They're not capitalists yeah. and they're not lazy, you know? Like there is there is evidence right now that people who don't have capitalism and they're not socialists, right? right? Mm -hmm. They're 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 people who live in tribal communities and stuff, and they're thriving. They're fine. <laughs> they might not have a they might not have a flat screen TV or a sports car, but they don't need that. They're happy. So I don't buy that argument at all. I'm with you. Yeah. What do you think we should do? Where, where do we go from here? I mean, I, I it's hard. It's this this is the hardest part for me because I actually don't know what you can do outside of, you know, doing things like on a local level, getting involved with helping with like mutual aid and stuff and, you know, well, voting I, for better people, <laughs> I guess. I think, I think, I think one of the, the issues and it's, it's the difficult piece in all of it, but I think, right. That, that we, we've been, but we've sort of been bamboozled as a society to believe that there's one of two options. It's either capitalism or communism yeah. and or nothing I, at all. And, yeah. But I think that obviously there's there, there are other ways, right? There are multiple ways. But I think the more difficult conversation for us in our country right now is first to be able to to, to say enough. Yeah. Right. To be able to state when is enough enough. Right. Because capitalism doesn't want us to ever be satisfied. And I think it's necessary for us to be able to acknowledge when we're satisfied and have the discipline around that. And I think we see elements of that with um, the, uh, the 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 rising popularity of Marie Kondo. Um, because like the whole concept of, 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 of the KonMari method is about a, like getting to a state of enough. And this is something, you know, like a lot of, a lot of Japanese culture is on board with, um, obviously Japanese culture is not perfect. There's other issues, but right. Like the, but the idea of enough that you don't need to just 
cram your home full of stuff and just buy for the sake of buying because it's somehow going to make you happy, right? We, we have to be able to talk about enough. And the fact that there's a lot of Americans that have gravitated to the KonMari method says to me that there is a recognition that there is a different, there's another way of living our lives that maybe we can still be capitalistic in the sense of, you know, I'm working, you know, I want to work a job to make the money, right? But that's actually communism, right? <laughs> or socialism. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting paid for the work that you do. Yeah. Um, but without it having to devolve into, well, I've just got to get you to keep spending more and more money, right? Because like, like Jeff Bezos, what are you going to do with all that money? Nothing. You can't spend it in your lifetime. Right. You know, uh, I just, you know, at what point do you have to say, like, I, I, you know, I'm not going to, there's no way that I'm going to be able to spend $20 million, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, like, I don't know, just having the discipline around enough rather than this argument of I have a right to make as much money as I want to make. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, you're not making it. Other people are making it for you. Yeah. Um, so I think I think starting, I think that's one place to start, too, is not only just, like, voting and, and that kind of stuff, but it's also within our own self-discipline. I think as Christians, the first thing is, and this is what Hauerwas says, and I agree with him on this, the first task of the church is to be the church. And we need to ask, Christians need to ask tough questions about what that means and be committed to that. And if that means that we're not running the world, that's okay. Hmm. Because I think there's a case to be made that we do better when we're not running things. The path of the solution to my head, I think is, is very close to that, and that we need to learn to be more unified with with each other um, to recognize that we all have like the same needs and if we recognize that we all need that we'll be better at looking out for each other it was so I can't really explain like how encouraging it was for me to see the whole IATSE thing unfold because I you know I deeply love I, I deeply love movies I had a deep 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 desire to work in the film industry, but couldn't do it because I felt like I just couldn't cut it. I told people on my way out that I am not a starving artist. I'm not gonna live out of my car and serve some asshole coffee. I'm not gonna do it. And now that we've come to this part, to this point in history in the film industry, I'm seeing messages saying like, you shouldn't have to do that. And I'm like, God, I wish someone had told me that back then that this could change, that we could all look out for each other. Because back then, the attitude, and still kind of today, is you have to go through this. You have to experience this. You got to pay your dues. And if you don't like it, go work at Applebee's. You can't cut it in, in, in movies, you know? Um, and and I, I accepted that. And that's, that's why I, I am where I am today, because I, that's, that's what I believed. And so, it's, there is, so it's, it is so comforting to see professionals say, hey, you shouldn't have to say, like, I paid my dues, you should do it too. To, that there's a recognition that, like, oh, we're all connected. Right. And we all, if we want change, we got to do it together. We can't, we can't just look out for ourselves. We got to look out for each other. Right. And, and the sense that paying your dues needs to be, like, like you know what? If we talk about Pink Shorts guy, yeah. you know, holding a boom mic the deserts of Tunisia. Yeah. That's that's not a fun job. I've held a boom mic right? in, 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 in the jungles of Florida. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's I not really a fun job. And like 
And like th- that, like that's paying dues. Yeah. The guy could, should still be able to be able to afford food after that. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's it, the, the fact that like that, you know, paying dues doesn't necessarily, the, the fact that we have to attach that to the amount of money you make to me is a bit different, right? Like the, the idea that you're going to walk on a film set and immediately be like the lead cinematographer, like, no, come on. You got to like, you kind of have to work your way up that way, right? Like you got to prove yourself. That's well, you got to prove that, that you, doesn't can, mean, you know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> right. But that, why that's tied to income yeah. is a weird, right. is a weird piece, right? Because it's just more about experiential practice, which doesn't necessarily have to be income related. Right. I guess what I'm trying to say um, is that we should unite the working class and that's the only way we can defeat capitalism. <laughs> that's all. <sighs> <laughs> Come Lord Jesus. That's my <laughs> <laughs> Come Lord Jesus and unite the working class. <laughs> well, you know, what does Mary say in when Mary when Mary finds out she's pregnant? Yeah. She busts into a prophetic utterance called the Magnificat. And what is it? What does she say that this child in her? What is one of the things that it occasions mm-hmm. that the poor have that the, the Lord, the, the Lord, that the, 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 the lowly, the, the, the poor and the lowly have been lifted up and the rich have been sent away empty. That it's it's a reversal of it's a reversal of the of the of the of the world order. Yeah. And yeah. So come Lord Jesus. Well, I believe that's all the time we have for this week. Father Chuck, thank you so much for being here. Hey, you know, I love it. Um, and uh, I also want to thank our audience for, for bearing with us. Uh, I don't know what the reaction is going to be like with this episode. You know, subscribe. If you have Instagram, uh, subscribe to IA underscore stories. And just, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, if you want to help out, I'm sure they'll let you know how you can do that you live somewhere like California or either of the coasts anywhere near where production happens and just, you know, also keep it on, keep it on, keep an eye on the news. I mean, it's going to be big, you know, come yeah. Monday, if they if the negotiations keep halting, we're looking at a really big strike. You guys yeah, really big. Um, so I, I highly recommend just checking out those stories just kind of just, just to get a feel for what these people have to go through. Um, do, do your buddy JP a solid do that. <laughs> So, all right. We'll see you again next week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this spooky episode. Uh, we, have more, <laughs> we, have, we have more spookiness in store for you next week. Have a great week. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.